Hare Krishna. So now we're going to speak about Bhakti Vinod Thakur. That's the royal we. So, uh, stay tuned here. I'm going to go over to my other sitting place. I need a pillow. Pillow. Cushion. So, um, first I'm going to um, translate that song for you, that verse that we sing to Bhakti Vinod Thakur. Namo Bhakti Vinodaya Satchidananda Namine Gauda Shakti Sarupaya Rupanuga Varayate. Um, this means, of course, I bow to Bhakti Vinod, Namo Bhakti Vinodaya, Satchidananda Namine, who is known as uh, Satchidananda. Sat means eternal, Chit means full of knowledge, and Ananda means blissful or bliss. So Bhakti Vinod Thakur is called Satchidananda because he has realized his eternal form, his eternal identity as Satchidananda. Eternal, blissful, full of knowledge as a loving servant of Krishna. So, Namo Bhakti Vinodaya Satchidananda Namine Goda Shakti Swarupaya. He's a Sarupa or the very form of the personification of Lord Chaitanya's power, Lord Chaitanya's potency. Goda Shakti. Goda Shakti Swarupa. So, Goda Shakti Swarupaya Rupanuga Varayate and the best of the followers of Rupa Goswami. Uh, we are called, or we try to be Rupa Nuga. Anu in Sanskrit means follow, and Ga means to go, so Anuga means a follower. A follower, Anuga. So there's Rupa Anuga, follower of Rupa Goswami, Rupa Nuga. And, uh, so why Rupa? Because, of course, Lord Chaitanya had many great devotees. Rupa, uh, Rupa Goswami was, of course, the senior, uh, or the, actually not senior, his older brother, Sanatana was older, but he was considered sort of the, uh, I guess, the leader of the six Goswamis. And they really established um, you could say philosophically Lord Chaitanya's movement. Of course, Lord Chaitanya himself engaged in famous philosophical debates with Prakasha Ananda Saraswati and his Mayavadi sannyasis, with Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, and, and with others. He even had a little debate with the Kazi in Navadvi. But, but Rupa, Rupa Goswami systematized everything. And of course, then also Jiva Goswami his nephew, in books like Bhaktir Samarit to Sindhu, and established really the, um, you could say the philosophy of Krishna consciousness as we understand it. And of course, he learned directly from Lord Chaitanya. So uh, the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita is very important because it is not only a... Um, you could say it's uh, a biography of Lord Chaitanya's activities. It's also an intellectual biography. 
and traces actually Lord Chaitanya's teachings and gives all the scriptural evidence. So, so Rupa Goswami was really a leader among the followers of Lord Chaitanya, those who were actively establishing his institution. Interestingly, the intimate associates who were in Jagannath Puri with Lord Chaitanya, the last six years of his, the last actually 18 years, he was 24 years in Navadweep, then six years traveling, then 18 years based in Jagannath Puri. And so those devotees, of course, were especially engaged in serving the Lord. And um, interestingly, even the Lord Chaitanya lived in Jagannath Puri 18 of his last 24 years that he spent in his manifest pastimes on this planet. Um, Jagannath Puri did not become a center for Lord Chaitanya's movement. There is an ISKCON center there, and of course devotees go there, but it's not, it's not Vrindavan. And, and so Vrindavan is much more, and of course Mayapur, Vrindavan and Mayapur. Um, Vrindavan really is the most um, famous pilgrimage place in terms in the world in general among Lord Chaitanya's followers and the six Goswamis were there. And because Lord Chaitanya came as uh, an incarnation or just as Krishna himself, Lord Chaitanya came to point to Krishna. Krishna sort of pointed at himself. If you read Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is saying, it's actually about me. And so Krishna is presenting himself as the Supreme Lord, as the source of everything. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it's the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna is talking, explaining himself, that he's God and what that means to be God and who we are and so on. So Krishna came, as Kunti says in her prayers, uh, that in the future, people will talk about what you're doing now. You're coming now to perform pastimes that people will, you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people will talk about what you've done. And so Lord Chaitanya, of course, his pastimes are important, but Lord Chaitanya is Krishna, but coming as a devotee of Krishna and trying to direct our attention to Krishna. And so it's interesting how the six Goswamis, uh, of course, were based in Vrindavan. Lord Chaitanya signed them there. They were sent to Vrindavan. They excavated the holy, holy places that people now visit. And they wrote very important books. And so Bhakti Thakur is called Rupa Nuga Varayate. Vara means the best or excellent. And so he's called the best of the followers of, Rup of, Lord, of Rupa Goswami. So that's why I'm explaining Rupa Goswami, because Bhakti Thakur is explained. Interestingly, Bhakti Thakur, in this verse to him, uh, is glorified in relation to two people. In relation, he's called the Swarupa, or the personification of Gora, Lord Chaitanya himself, and he's called the best follower of Rupa Goswami. So Bhakti Thakur sort of defined or he's explained in terms of his relationship to these two people. Lord Chaitanya being God and then Rupa Goswami showing exactly how to follow 
Lord Chaitanya. And so um, I'll tell a personal story if I'm allowed to do that. And uh, I've always had a special, I, don't, I guess you'd call it attraction to Bhakti Thakur. When the first temple I ever visited, the first ISKCON temple, was in Los Angeles, not the present temple at Watsika, but uh, the older one in La Cienega Boulevard, which I believe they were renting. I don't remember, but it was on La Cienega Boulevard. And um, not too far from the present temple, maybe a mile or two. So, <clears throat> In those days, they, it was an old church. And in the, the sanctuary room, you know, the, worst, the, the room of worship, uh, where they had a little stage, they had an altar. And uh, it was very interesting how the Hare Krishna movement was back then. It was, they had a, a, a very large, I guess you call it Indian rug or Persian rug on the floor. And because Prabhupada was doing the Krishna book then, he was actually, um, when I first started visiting the LA Temple, Prabhupada was actually unknown to me, living a few blocks away from me in Beverly Hills. I had no idea. And um, he was writing the Krishna book. And so the ISKCON artists, ISKCON Press, this was before VT, ISKCON Press was very busy painting pictures for the Krishna book that would be coming up. And um, so they had a lot of these pictures and other pictures also, other pictures uh, around the walls, around three walls of the, uh, the temple room. Of course, the fourth wall was the altar in the front. And so devotees in those days that are in Kirtan, I was just a guest there, they would, um, there was no men's side or woman's side back then. And so all the devotees together, they would circumambulate the temple, but around the perimeter, the, in, the inside perimeter of the temple, you know, chanting, just meditating on the pictures. And so we just go around and around the temple room, you know, looking at the pictures and chanting. And that was Kirtan in those days. So I remember when I came in front of the altar, which I did about every, I guess, approximately every two minutes as we were going around. But um, I didn't even know what an altar was. You know, I didn't really come from a religion where you had altars with pictures and everything. But I remember that um, what first caught my eye on the altar, what first really struck me was the picture of Bhakti Yonotaku. And that was almost the first um, experience I had in this life. A feeling that I had a spiritual connection that was, um, could not be explained in terms of material psychology. That was a spiritual experience, if I can use those words. And of course, then soon after that, uh, Krishna just revealed to me, I guess you could say just in my heart, it was just a very clear revelation. I didn't question it, just seemed like, yeah, of course. And that was that the Prabhupada is your eternal spiritual master. And it was, um, I just thought it was almost like somebody telling me what time it was in the sense that it was so 
uncontroversial and not something I would question or worry about. It's just, okay, that's obvious. So, but, but I remember that, that my first actual experience was, um, I remember that going by the altar, not even knowing, and I didn't have the concept of altar in my mind and just seeing Bob, you know, it and just feeling that somehow he knew that I was looking at him and that, uh, there was a connection there. And, uh, so ever since then, Bhakti, you know, I think for, you know, for many, many devotees, certainly for me, is a very, very attractive figure. He was among the followers of Lord Chaitanya. You could say he's really the first modern Acharya. Because if you look at, you know, some of the Vaishnavas before that, they might have been in the 19th century, they might have been in the 11th century. I mean, in terms of how they lived and, and everything, they were just sort of in this timeless culture. But in terms of an Acharya who really very consciously positioned himself in the modern world, even as he was engaged in purely worshiping Krishna and Lord Chaitanya, but very consciously and very intentionally placed himself in the modern world. That was Bhakti Yonotakur. And so Bhakti Yonotakur really is the beginning of modern Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He's really the beginning of it. And another thing which is, I find very, very interesting about Bhakti Yonod is that he was a true intellectual, a classical intellectual, Nowadays, there are very few intellectuals. They're kind of people that scream at other people that don't agree with them. And they're, you know, but in terms of people that are really well-rounded, well-read, thoughtful intellectuals, there aren't that many nowadays. And, um, and Bhakti Yonotaku was definitely one. He was, Bhakti Yonotaku, as all the, the serious biographies explain, belonged to a group, a very important group of people in British India called the Bhadralok. And Bhadralok is sort of a translation into Bengali. It's Sanskrit Bengali. I mean, it's Bengali, which is basically just Sanskrit words. Um, it's a translation of a, an important English term, which was good society. Because in England at the time, or in Europe at the time, there was a, a real distinction and boundary between, let's say, common people, what we might call with great affection, shudras, and, and, um, and the more educated, higher class people, not just nobles, not titled nobles, or just necessarily people who were very rich, people were just educated, good educated people who had serious moral standards. It included a moral dimension, people who were decent, who were, who followed the moral rules, which were basically our principles without the uh, vegetarian thing. So, but otherwise in terms of uh, sexual mores and and uh, gambling and, and drinking, they're, you know, pretty much like that. And um, 
So those respectable men and women, respectable men and women who again were educated and decent, were, they would refer to them as good society. There's a line actually in a Jane Austen novel called um, Sense Sensibility where Mrs. Jennings is describing to the heroine of the story what happened to this very unfortunate girl who was exploited by her guardian and, and basically her life was ruined. And, and so the lady says she was lost to all good society. So the, the Bengali translation of good society is Bhadralok. And the term in India, especially West Bengal, because, or Bengal in those days, it wasn't really divided so much, because um, the British had their capital up until, I don't know, in mid 1800s, they had their capital in Bengal. And Bengal is very much the intellectual and cultural center of, um, in addition to being the political center of British India. <clears throat> So the Bhadralok, that term was used more specifically in India to refer, especially in West Bengal or Bengal, to intelligent, educated Bengalis, including many younger ones, who were, um, that were, who were intellectually sophisticated, who were well-read in the Western sense, who had either formally or the equivalent of a Western education and who were really up on things, who, who could, you know, go eye to eye with the Western intellectuals, many of whom were ministers because the, in, the, um, in the Protestant religion, including the Church of England, you had to really be educated to, to be a minister. And so these preachers were coming to India from Europe, and especially from Britain, and they were educated people. And they weren't just, uh, it wasn't like, you know, the Spanish approach to Latin America, like you could convert or die a horrible death, or perhaps both, you know. You, I mean, we might actually get, offer you both. But um, the British, I mean, it was very different if you compare the, Spanish in, in the Western Hemisphere and the Americas and the British India, it's, despite some really bad things British did, it's very, very different. They're actually trying to persuade Hindus and, and they're trying to persuade the educated newer generations and, and they have debates and they discuss things and they, you have British people who are who become you know great sanskrit scholars and, and write the dictionaries that we still use and the grammar books and so on and so it was uh it's very interesting i i consider that time the time that bhakti Thakur lived in i think intellectually is probably one of the most interesting times uh, in modern history the age we live in now is intellectually not at all interesting uh for the simple reason that uh there are very few real intellectuals. I mean, there are propagandists in the universities for left-wing causes and things like that. But in terms of real intellectuals who are, because what was interesting about this intellectual period that Bhakti Vinod very actively participated in. So to understand Bhakti Thakur 
you really have to understand this historical context because that's the world he lived in and he was very active in. That was his quote unquote, his preaching field. And, um, and so most of the intellectuals on both sides were actually religious. They're religious. And so it was given that there's a God and that God has certain features such as being all powerful and all knowing and all good. And so now what are the implications of that? If you accept that there's a, a triple O God, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent. If you accept that there's a triple O God, then what does that mean? Does it mean that, does that suggest that maybe Krishna is God? Does it suggest Krishna is not God? What about Jesus? You know, and, and there are, you know, major philosophical problems with Christian doctrine. I mean, catastrophic theological problems, actually, with Christian, which I won't go into now. But um, so they were discussing all these things. These people were very sophisticated, and Bhakti was right there with them. He read all the books they read, and, and he knew history. He knew philosophy. I mean, he was right up there, you know, discussing. Consider a person, Bhakti Thakur, who is so um, brilliant that he writes poetry in three languages. I mean, it's one thing to know how to order your lunch in several languages, or you can have a simple conversation or something like that. But to write poetry, because I mean, poetry is um, it's kind of very refined language. That's what poetry is. It's, it's, you could say, the most refined language. So to write serious poetry, good poetry in three languages, his, which were Bengali, Sanskrit, and English, is something. Bhakti Thakur is very concerned to save the Western world. This concern with, this awareness of the Western world, which Bhakti was keenly aware of. I mean, he was, he lived really in a hybrid world. He lived, you could say, in the Western world intellectually, as much, you know, just as he lived in an Indian world. I mean, ultimately, of course, he lived in Krishna consciousness. But in terms of worldly culture, he was as Western as he was Bengali. And um, he's the one that first sent one of our books to a Western university. And he's very concerned to bring this mission around the world, especially the Western people. He's very concerned. He's really focused on it. And uh, another very interesting thing about Bhakti Vinod Thakur, which is not generally known, but which I discovered doing my research for my little hobby, which is Krishna West, is that um, Bhakti Vinod Thakur and his son, Bhakti Sanat, together, they actually wrote a book together, and they were, they were severe critics of sort of blind, ritualistic, religious institutions. And they didn't just mean of other religions. They also meant Vaishnava institutions. And they were, I mean, really heavy, heavy criticism. And they, for example, Bhakti Thakur and his son say the worst kind of Vaishnava who thinks that another Vaishnava is someone that dresses a certain way or wears a certain kind of tilak, and to think that that's what makes you a devotee is the worst kind of Vaishnavism, they actually say that. And uh, they talk about 
the tendency it's very interesting because if, if you look, just take a step back and look at a religion, you know, what happens to a religious institution over time? And of course, often spiritual movements begin with very high hopes and idealism and often with a, a someone who's perceived to be a pure spiritual leader, as in the case of Iskhan or, or, or the Gaudiya Math of Bhaktisiddhanta or Vashni Thakur in, in, in his mission. And so what you have is, inevitably, if you have a powerful acharya or preacher in any religion, and people come, and more people come, and at a certain point, you have to organize. Otherwise, it's just chaos. I mean, there's just like three people hanging out. Yeah, let's read the Bhagavatam tonight. You know, you don't need an institution, but if you've got 300 people, it's like, how do you even feed them unless you have some kind of management? I mean, you, you just have to organize things. How do you engage people? And so you have this, um, this ironic dynamic in the material world that the more you have a pure leader, the more you get an institution. And the more you get an institution, the more you tend to forget the original purity. And, and so it's sort of this thing that plays against itself. And you see it throughout history in all religions. So then what happens is you get people who are good managers, but not necessarily great, not necessarily pure souls, but they rise to positions of leadership in religious institutions. And actually, I'm not saying that every leader of a religious institution is just a, you know, some kind of clever bureaucrat that's not really spiritual. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that, yeah, some of them are. <laughs> some of them really are not that spiritual, but they follow the basic principles and they, uh, they kind of, either good managers or just they convince other people they are and then once they get power, you can't get rid of them. And so, and so in every religious institution, you get a certain number of people who are better at management than they are at love of God. And, and then what happens over time? So to make a long story short, um, to keep a spiritual institution truly spiritual and not just, and, and not to have uh, at least some leaders, I don't mean all leaders, some leaders who are really ambitious and attached to their positions and really kind of, by nature, like to tell other people what to do, but they justify it all by using words like parampara, and you know you can't make spiritual advancement unless you do what I say. And Prabhupada said you should follow me, and 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 so you, you get that. Again, I'm not saying all leaders are like that. I'm not even saying most leaders are like that. But are some leaders like that? Oh my God! I mean, anyone Hare Krishna who knows the answer to that one. So. So Bhakti Vinod, the reason I'm bringing this up is that Bhakti Vinod and his son, Bhakti Siddhanta, his great son, really criticize these things. They criticize, and, and not only, it's not only leaders, not just about leaders. It's about the fact that until we become really pure souls, like pure, pure souls, we still have material desires and 
in the most general sense, you could say it's the desire to lord it over in various ways. I mean, after all, what is lust but a desire to lord it over another person by sex pleasure or, you know, getting some position? Getting money is another way to lord it over. Again, I'm not saying everyone who has a position or money is like this, but some people are. Some people certainly are. And so, um, so not only leaders, I mean, I don't want to talk about leaders now, but just regular devotees. It's like, if you join the Hare Krishna, I'm using the Hare Krishna movement because I know something about it, but it's the same in any religion. It's not just the Hare Krishna movement. It's any religious organization where people themselves, because we are trying, we are working towards spiritual liberation, we may not be completely there yet. And therefore, let's say the average devotee still has some desire to lord it over. And the it's very common to dovetail that desire by thinking you're better than non-devotees. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a, um, it's a delicate thing because unless you think it's better to be a devotee than a non-devotee, why would you be a devotee? And so you have to really be convinced that there are significant advantages for you in being a devotee and not giving up your spiritual practice. If you didn't think that, you wouldn't have a spiritual practice. So. So it's, it's this delicate thing where you really are convinced that you have a better life by practicing Krishna consciousness and, and all that, and yet not falling into the trap of thinking that I'm better than other people who are not practicing. I'm better than them. Not just that I'm more fortunate, but I'm actually better than them. And then you get a class of devotees. And again, Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about this. This is not me, it's Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who want to, um, what, what's the word? Um, officialize. They want to really show very, to the world that they're better. And so therefore they adopt a certain special kind of dress or they have, you know, there are certain markings and, and, and these become for some devotees, symbols of their superiority. Because I'm better than a karmi, a jnani, a yogi, or, you know, whoever. And so, of course, it's possible to use these things just in a humble mood of, you know, someone may think that it's devotional dress. They may think that, but, but apart from that, um, it's possible to really embrace these things as a sign of one's superiority. Like we're different than them and we're better than them. And Bhakti Noah heavily criticizes this, heavily criticizes this. And you can fall into this illusion, which Bhakti Vinod criticizes, of thinking that the greater you are as a Vaishnava, the more different you are from non-Vaishnavas. And so you get this consciousness where we have to really make clear to ourselves and to the world that we're different. We're not you. We're a different group. We're different people. And we're not like you. 
And what's interesting is that according to our philosophy, the more one wants to do that, the more one is actually not advanced in a neophyte. Because if, if you look at the third class, second class, first class devotee, third class devotee can't even make friendship with devotees, doesn't really care about anyone, except when he goes and worships the deity. And then a second class devotee actually makes friendship with devotees and cares about non-devotees. A second class devotee preaches because a second class devotee cares about other people, cares about them, feels <coughs> empathy for them. And of course, you can't feel empathy for someone unless in some way you identify with them. So someone, let's say a devotee lacking empathy, a devotee who glories in being different from the karmis, just really, you know, glories in it, does everything that the person does everything they possibly can in terms of the way they dress, the way they do everything to really distinguish themselves from non-devotees. And they may even go out and preach or sell books, but really with the spirit of conquering the world, with the spirit of subjugating people, with the spirit of, uh, or just, you know, I sell a lot of Prabhupada's books, so I'm a great devotee. Again, I don't mean that all or most book distributors have that mundane motivation, but some people do. And so you can actually have a movement where it looks like you're really preaching, but there's a tremendous amount of vanity. There's an overwhelming sense of superiority. And one can even go out and sell books and do other things as a sign of one's, that I'm a great devotee. You know, I'm a great devotee because I sold a lot of books. So even things which look like compassionate preaching activities, in some cases, can be just another manifestation of one's arrogance. And I remember that. I mean, we had a problem. Again, there, you know, many devotees sell books are really good devotees. And, but I remember when I was GBC in Latin America and, and other places, actually, it wasn't just my zone. There was a real problem in ISKCON because you get these devotees who go out and sell huge numbers of books and they get all kinds of glory and fame and people would praise them. But then when some of the people that bought books came to the temple, you couldn't find anyone to preach them. That, you know, you have a, a temple, a whole temple where almost everybody in the temple is a book distributor and you can't find anyone that really wants to preach to guests when they come. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that it's possible, again, I'm not saying all or most, but it's possible for someone to go out and do book distribution as a demonstration of their advanced status that I'm really devoted to Prabhupada. And there may not be the true compassion because we know we've seen people who are so-called leaders who are big book strippers who just aren't even nice people. I mean, again, I don't say all or most, I keep saying that, but there definitely are people who are supposed to be leaders in a spiritual movement and they're really not even nice people. I mean, you really would not want to hang around with these people. They're just not nice. And so, so when we talk about the real Madhyamadikari, the real second-class devotee, we're talking about someone who doesn't just make a show of, I sold lots of books, or, you know, I organized this and that program, but someone that really cares about other people.
someone that truly deeply cares about other people and does whatever they have to do to help those people uh, feel comfortable in Krishna consciousness. And then, of course, you get the Paramahamsa or the Uttam Adhikari. Uh, and the Uttam Adhikari, as Prabhupada always explained, sees everyone as a devotee of Krishna. In other words, as you advance, your powers of empathy increase. You see less and less difference between yourself and other people. It's the neophyte who is threatened by the world because the neophyte, you know, in a moment could just kind of flip and go back to the material world. And so, you know, the neophyte may want to really kind of hide from the non-devotees or as some devotees say, when I go out in public, you know, I really, I need to dress, you know, sort of in an exotic way as a devotee because uh, when people look at me as being very different, I need that. I need that just to remind myself that I'm different. And so, okay, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. But uh, I mean, clearly it's not an advanced position. Unless people are staring at me, you know, I will forget who I am. Clearly not an advanced position, but the, but the Uttamadi Kari is, um, sees everyone else serving Krishna and kind of like, oh, what am, I'm not doing that much. And so the more you advance in Krishna consciousness, the less difference you see between yourself and others. And at the same time, you're very strict in your own Krishna consciousness. You can be strict in your own Krishna consciousness without thinking you're better than other people without having to build high cultural walls between you and other people so that you're not threatened of, you know, you're not, in, and you're not in danger of slipping back into your old life. So Bhakti Vinod talks a lot about these things. I'm mentioning these things today on his appearance day because he talks a lot about this. For one thing, because he's very concerned about preaching in the West and he wants to, he's very concerned to make Krishna consciousness come for Western people. So is Lord Chaitanya's movement just, you know, making continual progress? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, in terms of really learning how to uh, just integrate oneself in the educated world without losing one's own Krishna consciousness. And, um, and powerfully preaching, uh, I think there's things we really need to learn from Bhakti Vinod today. There are certain things that he preached very strongly that I think we really need to learn or relearn and, and apply. So that was Bhakti Yotakur. He was, of course, a magistrate. He was a highly respectable person in his own society, both in the regular society, he was very respected among the Vaishnavas. He had a son who was a great devotee of Bhakti, Bhakti Siddhanta, and he's the, and of course, uh, Gorky Shore is his disciple. And uh, he's really the founder of modern Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He's the founder of modern Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And he, <laughs> He did a lot, he took a lot of important steps that paved the way that really 
cleared the path for his son, Bhaktisanta and our Prabhupada. Uh, so it's almost inconceivable, the Hare Krishna movement, in the modern sense, without Bhakti and Otaku. So let me see really quickly here if anyone asked any questions. Make sure when you write down your questions, you put in your credit card number. Just kidding. That was a joke. Um, oh, what about, oh, this is very interesting. What about us that don't fit in anywhere? Maybe karmis think we are odd and the other devotees judge the way we preach. How do we deal with that pressure? How do we associate when our local association is maybe not so nice people to use your word? Um, karmis think we're odd. I think that would only be true if you live in a very strange place. I mean, I, I think it's possible to be a, a good devotee and a Krishna conscious preacher and not be seen by everyone around you as strange. So I think there's a way to, I mean, people obviously sooner or later will figure out you're different and and people, uh, you know, they may have this or that opinion about Kodi Vaishnavism, but I think the real challenge for us is to um, find a way to be good devotees, serious practitioners, and at the same time, make people comfortable with us just fit in and I think there are devotees that are doing that and so uh, it is possible okay thank you all very much for listening and uh, all glories to Bhakti Vinod Thakur and uh, hope to see you all soon Hare Krishna